not unlike something I've said recently just about life in general right now, which is that if anything is clear, it's that nothing's very clear. I think that's true about Daniel's prophecies. If anything is clear, is that there's a lot of disagreement about what they mean. And a lot of people want to come along and say, I know it means this, I know it means that, I know it means this. And they end up off in big arguments that evidently, or usually, are nothing to do with the lordship, the reign of Jesus Christ, and his complete control over all things, for which reason you have nothing to fear right now. But that is the message of the book. The message of the book is that even if you do not understand what it says, God is in control. That is why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not burned in the fire. That is why the vegetables that they eat manage to make them completely healthy and strong. That is why the lion's mouths are shut and do not eat Daniel. It's because God is in control of history. And he can change nature and creation to serve his will, especially for the sake of his people, when they reject the worship of creation, which is idolatry, and is at the heart of all those early stories. Why is Daniel thrown in the lion's den? Because he will not commit idolatry. Now, to start our work on the most confusing parts here this morning, I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 12. The book begins in your pew Bible on page 737. That's the only help you're going to get from me today. In the pew Bible, page 737 is Daniel chapter 1. Chapter 12 is the last chapter, so, so flip through it, and then find your way up to verse 8 of chapter 12. The very end of the book. Verse 8 of chapter 12. Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh Lord... What shall be the outcome of these things? Verse 9. He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. He goes on, and we'll just skip down to verse 11, where he talks about how from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Now again, you can Google 12,090 and 1335 and find people trying to claim this and that about what it means. But what they won't tell you is that no matter what you think, you will go your way and rest and receive your allotted place because you're a Christian. And that's the point. Daniel didn't know what it meant. Jesus did. The apostles maybe did. St. John in the Revelation, he adopts a lot of it, and he tells us some other things, but it's usually the same answer. You can't tell what God is doing, but he knows. He knows, and he will move things for his purposes. Now, certainly, looking back, hindsight on these visions, we can begin to put the pieces together, and we're going to try to do some of that beginning at chapter 7. So flip back to chapter 7 this morning. Put your finger there, and then we're going to tangent away from the text. I don't want to do this. It's going to make it more confusing for some of you, but I have to do it, because if I don't, others will be more confused when they find these things on the internet and don't have answers. So pull out this other little sheet you have for a second here. This is a crash course on eschatology. 
eschatology. That word just means the study of the end of the world. And in the history of Christianity, there are four different ways of looking at what we think is going to happen at or around the end of the world. And really, there's only three, but one of them sort of metamorphed into a different thing. Find the back page, that should really be the front page, and at the top it will say post-millennialism. We're going to start there because nobody really believes that anymore. Uh, you can find a few corner Calvinists who do, um, but, but they're very rare. I actually don't mind the idea, although I disagree with it. It's not nearly as destructive as, as premillennialism is. But if you look at that timeline there, you'll see a cross that represents when Jesus died. You'll see the church age. That represents us now in the New Testament era. Go all the way to the end, and you'll see the second advent of Christ. See that Cairo? It looks like a P and an X. Right? That's, that stands for Christ and his second coming. He's coming down to rise us up for the dead. And after that, there's a big line and there's a new heavens and new earth. So that's, again, the end of the world and the beginning of heaven, as most people think of that word. But then if you go back before that, you see these two other things between the church age and the coming of Christ. One is a thousand years and one is Satan's little season. It's what those two things mean that all the fuss is about, yeah? And both of them come out of the book of Revelation, which isn't really our thing to look at today. But it says in Revelation that Christ will reign for a thousand years. And it says in Revelation that the devil will be let loose upon the earth for a short time to deceive the nations. So what do you do with that? Well, post-millennialism posits this idea that... Before Christ returns, his reign from heaven will bring into place a perfect kingdom on earth ruled by Christians. That the Christians will rule the entire globe. But afterwards, it will all fall apart and Satan will have a little time and then Christ will return. That's post-millennialism. Which again, nobody really believes this anymore by and large. What's far more common is pre-millennialism. So... Post-millennialism, Christ returns after the thousand years. Pre-millennialism, Christ returns before the thousand years. You see that on the bottom of that same page. It says historic premillennialism. And you can see that all that's really changed is the return of Christ has moved from after these things, the millennium and the fires of the devil's little season, to before these things. So the idea would be that one day we look up and Christ has come back. And he sets up a kingdom in Jerusalem, and he rules the globe with a perfect world for a thousand years, and then it all falls apart, and the devil gets up, and he fights back, and then there's the end of the world. Now, that is, again, what most of your Christian friends and neighbors believe, unless they're Roman Catholics. Roman Catholics do not tend to believe this, but most American Christians do, but with a twist. So you've got to flip the page over to find the twist. At the top, you'll see it says dispensational premillennialism. So what happened is in the 1800s, a little publishing house published a book called the, um, the Darby Study Bible. I think that's right. And in it, it gave you a roadmap for the end of the world that explained a bunch of stuff from this prophet and that prophet and this prophet and that prophet. We'll take all these verses, we'll put it together, and we'll figure out how to know when Jesus is going to come back. 
Now, remember, we just read in Matthew 24, Jesus says no one's going to know. Forget that. He meant then. But now it's different. We figured it out, and that's actually how they'll teach it. But see all this extra stuff that they throw in. They still believe there'll be a thousand-year reign on Christ, but before that, and the visible return of Christ, you have a secret return of Christ. That's what most of your friends and neighbors will call the rapture. The rapture. The rapture is a word in the Bible, in the King James. It does talk about at Christ's return that he will enrapture us up to him, that we will be caught up with him in the air. What it doesn't say is that nobody will know what happened and there'll be a bunch of people left over and then there'll be an Armageddon battle. It doesn't say that there. It just says we'll all be caught up to be with Christ and so we'll always be with Christ. So again, to put this picture together, you have to really cherry pick a lot of different things. But to, to give them fair heed, here's their story again. We're the church right now. We're kind of waiting for some things to happen before Jesus can come back. That's the key in this. Notice, Jesus can't really come back for good. All that can happen is the secret rapture. And you sh it's not on the picture. Before the secret rapture, they have to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. That hasn't been done yet. So if you're in this group, you really ought to be with the Zionists helping Israel get rid of the dome on the rock so we can have the temple rebuilt so Jesus can come back. Okay, that's, that's all part of this system. I'd rather be the historic premillennialist myself. It's a little simpler. I'm not, but, but anyway. So the secret rapture, what happens is all the Christians get taken away, and then suddenly there's a bunch of people who don't believe, who slowly figure out the Christians got taken away. That must mean Christianity is true. And so there's people who convert. And there's a bunch of Jews who convert. And then they get together and they decide to try to work it out. But unfortunately, there's a group of nations that have formed a one league alliance to destroy the planet. And maybe it's the UN or something like that, we'll say these days. And then there's a big war over in Jerusalem for the Temple Mount. And then that's when Jesus comes back after that seven year trial in Armageddon. Yada, yada, yada. We can just leave it, right? I think. Can we just leave it at this point? Um, it's out there. It's the normative way your friends and neighbors think about the end of the world. The worst part of it, Jesus can't come back yet. They can't hope. The other worst part of it, it doesn't say it on the diagram, but the church is a mistake. What was supposed to happen was Jesus was supposed to be crowned king and reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. But oops, they killed him. So he had to rise from the dead and save the nations instead. You follow this? The cross is a mistake? Bad idea. Anytime you hear someone say that one. Third problem. Most people who believe in this stuff don't know this one. But at the very, 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 very end, when they're finally going to send Satan away, he's the scapegoat. And so what that means is, on the final judgment, before Satan is sent away, they have to take all the sins of the world and put them on Satan so the sins of the world have somewhere to go. Now again... If that didn't click in your head immediately, ask me later. But when you make Satan the atoning sacrifice for the world, there's something wrong with your system. And it's all to keep in place this idea of a secret rapture that frankly has no real uh, support in Scripture. All right? So, what do we teach? We teach that we don't know. That's what we teach. Uh, we teach we don't know. We call it amillennialism because that's what our enemies call it. And so we're stuck with the term. What it means is that the thousand-year reign is a picture. It's a symbol. 10 times 10 times 10. That's 3 or 10 cubed. 3, the number of the Trinity, the number of God. 10, the number of completion, the number of perfection. So God's perfection is indeed how Christ will reign 
forever. The thousand-year reign of Christ doesn't really end with his return, but only is finally inaugurated in sight. Now, one thing I do not understand, I'll teach you what the Lutherans say, is that before Christ returns, there will be a little season of Satan, you can see it in the picture, during which persecution will get worse, and it's going to get so bad that we won't know how to deal with it, and then Christ will return. What I cannot understand is why good Lutherans who think that the thousand-year reign of Christ is a picture of a long time do not think the little season of Satan's rule is also a picture of a long time. So I will submit to you that you should take that little season of Satan and extend his line all the way back to where the thousand-year reign of Christ starts. So that from God's perspective, what's happening? Christ is reigning. From the world's perspective, what's happening? The devil's reigning. And in fact, look at that. It's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it looks like. So I do not think we are waiting for some worse persecution to come. I think nations rise and they fall. I think that happens over and over again. But before Christ comes, what can we know? We'll be getting married and giving in marriage and acting like it's life as normal. Whether we're in a collapsing society or not, it'll just be more of the same. And then what? An archangel shout, a trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. We too will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, be like him, caught up in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord, resurrected into that life of the world to come. All right, eschatology. Just in case you have to have that conversation. Now, I'm going to tell you, most of Daniel's got nothing to do with that. Nothing, 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 nothing. All right, so, but here we go. Chapter 7, good stuff here. I'm going to read a little bit for you. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, I talked about him in the last sermon. Again, search for my name on YouTube. You'll be able to find How to Read the Bible, Daniel, Part 1. I talk about Belshazzar, who he was, the handwriting on the wall, all that. In the first year of his reign, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of the man was given it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Verse 6, After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a man, a mouth speaking great things. 
And now our text that we heard read a few moments ago, as I looked, thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days takes his seat. He sits down. Books are open. The beast and the horn are judged, if you remember. And then one like a son of man approaches the Ancient of Days and takes his seat. All right. I'm going to try to explain as much of this as possible. But let's go backwards. Let's go backwards through this here. There's this little horn that makes its way out of the vision and into the judgment. And it's cast into the fire. Can, can you figure out who got destroyed before Jesus ascended into heaven? Huh? What happened? Was it a man? He has eyes like a man. He wants to reign over men. But who is this? This is the devil. Well, it's Judas, indeed. The devil entered Judas Iscariot. I wouldn't say it's specifically just him, but you're, you're on the right track here, right? This is indeed the prince of the age, the ruler of the power of the air, the, the prince of darkness, Satan himself, who, throughout all of history, tries to move various uh, re, uh, regimes, organizations, groups of people, so that he sets himself against God's will. And if you remember when Jesus came down to heaven, or came down from heaven, was incarnate, was baptized by Joseph, by <laughs> Joseph, goodness, get ahead of myself, was baptized by John the Baptist, what happens next? He goes out into the wilderness. He faces off against the devil. The devil tries to get him to fall. He can't do it. There's a bunch of if questions. If you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, he is the son of God, but he doesn't have to prove it. The devil leaves into a more opportune time. What's that more opportune time? Well, when Jesus is on the cross, you can hear the leaders who are crucifying him saying to him, if you are the son of God, come down off that cross. And here's a fascinating moment. Did the devil want Jesus dead or did he not? And the answer's kind of both. He didn't really know what was going on. He couldn't quite see the whole game. He thought, I can get the Son of God, I can trap him in death, and at the same time, if I can trick him to not do his Father's will, I definitely got him. And to shift into Ezekiel, one of my favorite things in Ezekiel is the prophecy about Gog and Magog. God effectively says to the devil, I'm going to put a hook in your nose, and I'm going to draw you from the ends of the earth, and you will not be able to say no to what I offer you, and it will be your end. And indeed, that is what happens. Remember how Christ tells this parable about one cannot enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he binds the strong man. What happened at the cross? A, a spike is put between the devil's tongue and Jesus' feet into that cross. So he can no longer speak to deceive you. He is bound indeed in all the blasphemies of his little horn. Oh, they are nothing in Christ's sight. And so, again, he ascends and takes all glory at the end of this vision here because he has, in fact, put to end the devil in the midst of the rule of the fourth beast. Of the fourth beast. So now we've got to figure out what these beasts are. I already talked about it in the other sermon. This one goes super fast here, though. Review. There's been a vision that a different person had, a dream. Nebuchadnezzar had it about a statue with a gold head and a silver chest and bronze legs and feet made of iron and clay. And this statue is destroyed by a little rock that becomes a great mountain. And then we're told it's the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdom of Persia and the kingdom of Greece and the kingdom of Rome. And then during the time of Rome, this little stone, the stumbling stone, the cornerstone, becomes a mountain at Golgotha and Calvary, destroying all the attempts of the devil to rule the world through the powers of this age. These beasts are the same idea, just coming at it from a different direction. Huh? So, the first beast, that is the lion with the wings, who ends up standing upright like a man, is the kingdom of Babylon. 
that not only was officially represented by a lion with wings, you can see the statues, Google it, they got the statues of them, but also we learned in chapter six, uh, chapter five, chapter four? I did it all this week, what is it? It's chapter four. In chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a Christian. He loses his mind, he's crushed by God, he repents, and he becomes a Christian. He, in his cursing by God, he ends up eating grass like an ox, living in the fields, acting like a beast. But then his mind is restored to him, and he stands upright like a man, and restores to his kingdom, and in fact praises the God of heaven, the king of kings, right? So that's this first beast here, the kingdom of Babylon that under Nebuchadnezzar had a safe place for Christianity, and of course the Jews who were the Christians living at that time waiting for their Messiah. But uh, in the story about Belshazzar and the writing on the wall, we learned that Babylon falls due to the folly of the sons and the grandsons of Nebuchadnezzar and is conquered by the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. That's this bear in chapter 5 that's raised up on one side. We're going to look at this bear again in a moment. It's not going to be a bear. It's going to be a ram. It's going to have two horns, and one's going to be bigger than the other. That's because the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians didn't stay the Medes and the Persians for long. It became the Persians. So the one side is beginning to dominate. And the three ribs in the mouth are probably representations of the three famed kings of Persia who ruled for a great amount of time in all history. If you study history, you know these guys, Cyrus, Darius, and Xerxes. We'll come back to Xerxes a little bit here, and Cyrus, I think, as well, probably later. But So the bear is Persia. After Persia, there's this leopard with four wings on its back and four heads, and it's given dominion. So it sweeps away the bear's power. This is Greece. We're going to look at Greece again in a moment with a different vision where it's a goat. But this number four is going to show up again. So just kind of put that in the back of your head that there's a four thing going on with the Greek beast. And then notice this interesting thing. When we get to Rome, it's clearly Rome, this fourth beast, because of the iron teeth. Remember, the feet have iron mixed with clay, right? So the iron teeth is this fourth beast of Rome. But notice how it's not like an animal. All the other three are like animals. Rome is unlike anything else that has ever been. And the ten horns imply a completion again. Remember, ten is the number of completion. They imply an existence that will extend past its own existence. And in this way, what I would contend to you is that Rome has never gone away. And, and you kind of know this, because if you go to Rome today, at the very center of Rome, there's a country that's not called well, it is. It's called Rome. They call it the Vatican City, but it's a country that is Rome, and it has a king, a prince, and a bunch of other princes, and they continue to rule. Now, if you don't like me ever saying bad things about the Catholics, you'll have to forgive me today, because the thing is, the Catholics say lots of bad stuff about us, and so at some point, I have to talk back. And the fact is that Christians that are not Catholics have believed up until the last hundred years where it was too mean to think it, that the Pope has taken more power than he deserves, that he claims to be the head of Christianity on earth and that that's not fair, and that when he was burning people at the stake for disagreeing with him, that that simply was not cool. And as a result, he was acting in the manner of the Antichrist if there ever was one. And so in this way, Rome does continue to rule us today as the church. Think of it this way. If you ask anybody who's not a Christian, who's the head of Christianity, who are they gonna say? The Pope, right, 
Is that fair? No. Is it true? No. The East don't think that. We don't think that. The Methodists don't think that. But he says it, and it's still on his books, that if you disagree, you don't get to go to heaven. That's still officially their doctrine, even though most Catholics don't believe that, and they're nice people, and they're Christians, and we want to encourage them in their Christian walk, and we want to encourage them to take back their church, to let their priests be married, because it's good to get married, right? And to not think that you can buy your way into heaven with indulgences. That's a bad idea, yeah? It doesn't mean they're not Christians, but it does mean that this prophecy about Rome never going away and continuing to exert a blasphemous power over the world, well... This is the way it's always been understood. I'll leave it at that for you there. I will contend. Let me say this. If you're going to talk about the Antichrist, this is not the text. It's not. And neither is Revelation. The place, if you want to talk about the Antichrist, is 2 Thessalonians, where the man of lawlessness is revealed. You want to talk about confusing. Goodness gracious. Even more confusing than this stuff is. But that's the place to go. He was being held down in Paul's time. And then something let him go, and that's about it. The Lord will destroy him with the word of his mouth. It doesn't say much more. Again, pin the tail on the Antichrist is a recipe for disagreement. What we get here instead is this, that under the reign of Rome, which will never go away, Jesus dies, rises, and ascends to put an end to the devil's words. Period. Boom. It's done. It makes sense. It's the vision that we have received. All right. From here, we're going to jump a little bit ahead. I'm going to skip some more. There's more explanation here. But let's look at chapter 8 now. What happens next is another vision. It comes about later. And it does the opposite of what you'd think. And it's going to go this way all the way through the book. You would think it would start with the smallest vision. And then it would get bigger and bigger and bigger until you have the very end. Instead, it starts with the big vision with the very end and the ascension of Jesus. And now we're gonna take a step back. We're gonna forget about Rome entirely. We're gonna forget about Babylon entirely. And we're just gonna look at Greece and Persia. Well, why do we care about that? Honestly, we don't. It doesn't have a lot to do with us, but it had everything to do with the people that were about to be sent back to the promised land from Persia to replant the temple there who would then undergo these two kingdoms, Greece and Persia, ruling over them while they were waiting for their Messiah. And as we'll see in the next vision, it'll get even deeper into the king of not Persia, just Greece. It'll divide up what goes on there to get even more specific. And we'll try to do some of that before we're done today. But let's look at this this vision in chapter 8. All right. So it says, chapter 8, verse 1, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, A vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So a new vision. And I saw in the vision. And when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw the vision, and I was at the Ulai Kana. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the Kana. It had two horns. And both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up at last. Came up last, excuse me. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. So this is Persia. Susa 
is a great citadel that Persia will conquer before it conquers Babylon. So Daniel's actually standing in a place that they're going to lose as this vision starts to take place under the reign of this same guy, Belshazzar, who will eventually be drinking wine in the castle while his dad, Nabodius, is out fighting. And then his dad, Nabodius, loses. And then he ends up, again, you know, drinking the wine and dying that night uh, when Cyrus is attacking across the, uh, the canals of Babylon. Um, getting into the history of Nabodius and, and Belshazzar is fun, but we'll not do that right now. Um, so, notice the two horns. One's larger than the other. This is because Persia begins as the Medes and the Persians. You maybe hear, have heard that said a couple times this morning. If you go back further in history, there's no Medes and Persians, and there's no Persia. There's just media. Uh, not like the media, right? right? But this, this kingdom of media. And it is an ancient, powerful kingdom. It is known to be uh, massive and, uh, and rich and wealthy. So where do the Persians come from? Well, the Persians are a little further east, modern Iran, up in the mountains. And they begin to assert themselves, but media keeps them subjected. So they're kind of like paying tribute, but they're getting stronger. And what happens is that this guy named Darius, uh, he marries into the family, the royal family of the Medes as a Persian. And as the grandson of the king, he, he has an insurrection and throws off the king. He takes a new name, Cyrus. And he rules the Medes and the Persians for a while until he says, well, hey, I'm Persian. We're Persians. Yeah. And from there, Persia is where it's at. And media really never shows up historically again. Now, this is kind of the end of media. And hence the larger horn of the Persians. All right. So without getting into the other Darius who comes after Cyrus and Xerxes and all that, let's look at verse 5 here because it just skips right past it to the next kingdom. Hmm? As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran him in powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he was cast to the ground, and he trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn. We'll come back to that in just a moment. So, I mentioned Cyrus the Great, King of Persia, Darius, who is not Darius the Mede, he's the second great king of Persia. There's actually a scuttle for power between the two, so he's not really the next king because they try to make Cyrus' son king, a bunch of stuff. But Darius ends up consolidating and giving everything together. He's not related to, Darius, to, to Cyrus. But then his, I believe, grandson, Xerxes, is one who you might know. He's made most famous in the Battle of Thermopylae story. There's a movie called 300. Kids don't watch it. Uh, but it's, it's quite a story, indeed, about the Spartans 
who know that all of Greece is going to be attacked by Persia, and they stand at the hot gates, which is like a small pathway, and 300 of them stand abreast with their shields, and they hold off the great Persian army for enough days for all the, uh, the Athenians to escape. It's, it's a nice tale. Uh, Herodotus tells it well, and it does make not a, bad, uh, not a bad movie if you can handle the blood and the gore and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, so what's kind of behind that, though, is this. Before Xerxes attacks Greece, his, his patriarch, father Darius, is attacked by Greece. They try to take some of the land up on the northern part of the Persian border. I love this story. At the time, he's busy. He's got a lot going on. He's got battles on many fronts. So he appoints a man to stand at his dinner table every night and say, Sir, remember the Greeks. And for years it goes on, he actually dies, and then his son has to take up the war to go punish the Greeks. But when he takes up this war, he amasses an army unlike any that history had ever seen, or so the story says. And he goes and he, he goes at them with everything he's got. He's got people from the Far East, he's got Africans and elephants and all this kind of stuff. The hot case happens, that's the famous part, but more important, something the Greeks had and were good at that the Persians weren't counting on was ships. There's a battle at sea that causes the supply lines of Persia to collapse, and as a result, they have to retreat. Xerxes first leaves a general, doesn't work out, the Battle of Marathon happens, you remember that one, and then it all kind of comes off and Persia retreats, licking his wounds. What this does is it stirs up Greece. Greece realizes, you know what? We're pretty good. And they start to unite the tribes. One of the great kings who's most able to do this is named Philip of Macedon, or Philip of Macedon. He's got like one eye, he's like lived through all sorts of battles, he's this like terrifying guy, but he's, you know, he's a warrior king. And he starts pulling all the Greeks together because they're going to go back and take some of this northern Turkey area, Ionia I believe it's called, that once belonged to Greece but now is under Persia's control. So they're going to go take that back. And they're ready to go and then Philip dies. Philip has a son named Alexander. Alexander apparently was really good at talking to people. He got everyone to say, follow me anyway, and there they go. And this is the goat, the unicorn goat, the single horn that comes right at Persia. And Alexander does something that to this day he's called Alexander the Great because no one's ever done what this guy does. He conquers everything in like 10 years. Everything. He's got Egypt. He's got Turkey. He's got the West. He's got Babylon. He sits down on the throne of Babylon. He was a roaring drunk, so they say. Maybe that's why he died. We don't know, but he's 32 and he dies. There's another nice story about him there. As he's on his deathbed, he's sick, he's poisoned. There's all sorts of different kind of tales about how it happened. But his, his four leading generals, all older men, they're kind of waiting around, you know. So, so, which one of us is supposed to be in charge? And, you know, he's sitting there, barely can breathe. And he just says, the strongest. And he dies. And what happens? Well, I mean, the prophecy says it. The one horn is shattered and four horns arise to take it place. What happens is these four generals go to war and they fight against each other until they have more or less consolidated four separate kingdoms of what used to be Alexander the Great's kingdom. Two of them are not much worth remembering because they don't amount to much, but two of them amount to a great deal in history. That is the general Ptolemy and the general, I'm gonna get his name wrong, I think it's Seleucia, but his descendants are called the Seleucids. Think of like some sort of weird spider insect people, Seleucids, right? You can maybe remember the name that way. It's a strange name, but the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. The Ptolemies will rule all of Egypt, 
And the Seleucids will rule all of Mesopotamia, Tigris and Euphrates River, Babylon and Persia area. Yeah? Remember the Fertile Crescent is part of this idea. There's Egypt on one side, Mesopotamia on the other, and what's in the middle of the, of the moon? Israel. And so what is history always about between these two power bases? Who controls the trade routes through Israel? And that is what the next vision is going to get into. Okay, but first let's kind of recap here. There's a ram that shows up, it's Persia. There's a goat that shows up, it's Greece. Greece crushes Persia and puts an end to their rule. Out of one of the four little horns, or four horns of Greece, these four kingdoms that arise, back at verse 9, there will come a little horn who grows exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. I'm not going to read through everything that happens there, but this little horn is a man who comes... Oh, let me see how I say this. This little horn is a prophecy of a very bad king who will come out of one of these four kingdoms who will persecute and cause the abomination of desolation in and on the area of Israel. When you track out everything that's said about who this is and what he's going to do, and you look at the history, it does happen. And remember how I said we're going from big to small? We really are. We're going from Alexander the Great, like everyone knows him. You're not going to have heard of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, right? I mean, what? Who's that guy? Although, although, in his time, he was pretty solid. He actually did do a lot. Not only did he conquer everything to the east of him and everything to the north of him, he eventually got so powerful that he was about to conquer Egypt. So this fight between Ptolemy and Seleucia, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, which was back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, he almost gets to the point where he completely conquers. And then something else happens. Um, I'm gonna, I don't have the verse written down, uh, and it comes up in the later vision, but I'm going to tell the story now. Uh, what happens is, He's going down with this massive army to destroy Egypt. The guy on the throne of Egypt is like 12 years old. And he's met by something unexpected. He's met by a Roman. And this Roman, who, they aren't really everything yet. They're just kind of up over there doing their thing. But they got ships, and they got iron, and they got a senate, whatever that is. And this Roman, with his small group that he's got with him, not nearly as big as Antiochus' group, he says, hey, here's a letter. He reads a letter. It says, turn around, go back. And he's like, I'm going to talk. Literally, he says to the ambassador, I'm going to talk with my generals. The ambassador walks up with a stick, draws a line in the sand around him with a stick, and says, answer before you leave that. There's a moment. He says, all right, we'll go back. The Roman shakes his hand, embraces him like a brother, and there is the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And at the end of a sword, usually, but they did indeed manage to keep things at bay. What happens next, amazingly, is this guy Antiochus, who's been powerful, he's been wealthy, but he hasn't persecuted the Jews much yet. He turns around. Now he can't win. Guess what he does? He goes at the Jews. And he begins to do horrible things to them. He takes Jerusalem. He tears down the, the, the holy places. He puts a statue of Zeus in Jerusalem, and he offers pigs on the altar. Now, if you know anything about Judaism, that is to completely desacralize the place and make it worthless. One of the worst stories from this time, I've told it before, he forbids circumcision. And the law was this, that if you had your child circumcised and they found out they would kill the child, and then they would string the child around your, your neck as a woman. You have to wear the baby. 
the dead baby. That's this guy. That's this little horn. So if you ever go and read this and you see about his blasphemous acts and all this, I mean, he really was an awful, awful person. Amazingly, he also was very popular. There's another story about him with his people back in, in the Babylon area. He would go regularly to, um, uh, to bathe with the commoners in the bathhouses. And he, he considered himself just one of them. And so he was very popular. And, and there's a story about one time he's sitting there and he's being rubbed down by this very expensive ointment. And this old man says to him, must be nice to be a king. Uh, a little gusty thing to say to your king. The next day, Antiochus comes back and his servants have a giant barrel of this same expensive ointment. And they sneak up and they pour it on the back of this old man. Kind of like the Super Bowl with the Gatorade kind of thing, right? They do that and it goes all through the water. Suddenly everybody's jumping in the water because they want to get some of this on them. And he's in the middle of it laughing, having a great time. He almost sounds like a normal guy, right? And yet, and yet, what does Antiochus Epiphanes mean? Epiphanes isn't his proper name. It's the name he gave himself. It means son of God, manifestation of God. He's a real fascinating person. He's a real evil person. He's this little horn, and he's also the king of the south. All right, so I've kind of led into him. I've told his story a little bit. I've told about the ram and the goat. Chapter 9 through 12 has one big vision in it that's going to zoom in even more on his life, Antiochus, the king of the south, and the result of his life, which is the collapse of the Seleucid Empire. Before the vision happens, first, the part we are going to read is Daniel chapter 9. Let's read this here. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahusuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. This is Cyrus, by the way. I, Daniel, perceived in the books, that's the Old Testament, the number of years according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet that must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. This year that he says is happening is 68 years. So in the 68th year, he realizes after 70 years, rounding up, actually, uh, we're going to go back from exile. Then I turned to face the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Notice, he sees, he sees we're almost there. The promise is almost fulfilled. He doesn't put his feet up and say, thank God, it's all going to work out. He repents. He throws himself on the ground. He pleads for mercy. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. This prayer is going to go all the way to verse 19. I won't, I won't read it all here. But most of it is him saying, Jesus, we don't deserve for you to send us back. That's most of it. And then he says, but you're merciful. But you're merciful. Please send us back anyway. Look at verse 20 now. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, we know he's an angel, but he looked like a man when he showed up, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, earlier vision, 
came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So now there's going to be a series of one vision is going to involve a bunch of sevens, and then Jesus is going to show up three weeks later and explain a bunch more stuff. He's going to get into the king of the north and south thing. What I want you to see here is the moment he prays, I'm wrong, you're right, have mercy, God has already sent the answer. And what we know is that within just a couple of weeks, Cyrus will say, go back to Judea, build the temple again. His prayer is answered, and the fulfillment of prophecy begins. Yeah? Verse 24 through the end of the chapter is this bit about, bit about the 70 weeks, the 77s. It's very confusing. It's the most confusing part of the whole book. The word weeks doesn't really exist. It's the word sevens. Most people interpret it to mean years, and then they try to use it to pin the tail on the time frame for Jesus coming back and being born. But since we know when that happened, they always have to count backwards. And since there's multiple ways to do it, you end up with a bunch of different answers as to when it starts. I'm not going to try to explain that to you today. What I want to do instead is kind of talk about this king of the north and south thing. So if you read through the rest of chapter 9 to chapter 10, you'll see that Jesus shows up pre-incarnate. And he begins to explain everything that's going to happen up to, quote, the time of the end. What is the time of the end? What is the fullness of time? What does the tell us? When does Jesus say it is finished? Jesus gives this vision to talk about the history of the land of Israel leading up to the time when that final beast will be in charge and Jesus will come to fulfill all things in his death and resurrection. He will get into language about the king of the north and the king of the south. The king of the north is the descendants of the Seleucids, beginning with Antiochus, but actually traveling through a number of his descendants because in this book, kings and countries are the same thing. And then the king of the south is the Ptolemies. These are those non-Egyptians, Greeks, who rule Egypt. If you know the name Cleopatra, she's very famous for what she did down there at a certain time. Now, there's actually like four different Cleopatras. And the trick is, again, once you read into chapter 11 and 12, it moves fast and loose. You have one sentence about something that happens, and the next sentence... It's like 50 years later and like 30 miles removed. And the next sentence is like a different guy, and he's over here. So if you get all the history figured out, you can go through and you can kind of see how, yep, 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 it actually works out. But what most people do is they try to look at the newspaper and look at the UN and decide whether President Biden and whether uh, Putin or, or whoever is actually doing this stuff. So we're not going to have time today, and I don't have the capacity. I read through it twice, and I still don't have the capacity to tell you how all of chapter 12 gets pinned down to these different people. But what I can tell you for sure is the way the vision works out is you have the big vision of the four animals, and then it goes down to the two, and then it gets into two out of one, right? There were four that come out of one. It gets two of those, and they fight back and forth until at the very end, the king of the south, what happens? He just goes away. His piddles out. No one comes to his aid. Huh? And guess what? The Seleucids, they end up fighting themselves. No, you try to look on Wikipedia. Wikipedia has this nice thing where there's a king, and it'll say, like, you can click on the link for his successor, 
So you're clicking, and it's like, you know, Antiochus is succeeded by Demetrius I, and Demetrius I is succeeded by Antiochus VI, and Antiochus VI is, is, uh, is succeeded by, oh, two guys. How's that work? Well, it means they were fighting for it. And those guys, they're succeeded by, like, four guys. Why? Well, because they're all fighting for it. Right? It, just, it just falls apart. Nothing's left. And, of course, Rome is gradually just marching everywhere and extending its peace, you know, this, this beast that will never go away. All right, we're definitely at our time here this morning. Um, after two of these sermons on Daniel, uh, I, I promise you I will go home and feel like I didn't do a good job. The book, the book is amazing. There's just so much there, but it also is overwhelming. It can be confusing. So remember how we started today. How did it end? Daniel seals up the prophecy. He doesn't know how it's going to turn out, but he's told that he's going to be fine. That all of this is for the good of the kingdom of God and the people of God. And so if you're going to read Daniel today, no matter how you understand it, you have to see it's the same answer. Whatever the kings of the earth, the beasts of the world, and if you take the revelation language, you have the beast of the sea and the beast out of the earth, and they're going to be here all the way to the very end. You know, this is the tyranny of government and the tyranny of false religion. Whatever they're doing, however they're united or fighting, however they are setting themselves against God and his anointed, you're going to be fine because you are in the body of Jesus Christ. You are washed and sealed with his name and his holy blood. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And so whether you die or whether you live, whether you're in control or whether control is wrested from you, whether you are free, whether you are a slave, you are owned by a master who is moving all of it, not so you'll have your best life now, but so that your faith will be preserved like Daniel's under the tyranny and confusion in the certainty of that little rock, that little stone that crushes it all and becomes the mountain that can never be destroyed. Mount Zion, indeed. And, and again, Jesus' very body and blood himself, which we are about to partake in as the culmination of all time right now.